Hey awesome nerds and welcome to the sixth episode of D&D and TV, the podcast where we rewatch television shows that we really love and talk about how those themes can be used in role-playing games. I'm your host Jeremy Vine and today I'm joined by the man who has not cut off somebody's hand and replaced it with a hook, uh, Dr. Chops. Mike, how you going mate? I am very well, that's my official story and I'm sticking to it. How are you? Certainly the police have, uh, have come to that conclusion as well. I'm doing pretty, pretty well, actually. It's a lovely morning we're recording, and we're talking about an awesome episode of Invincible. It is pretty awesome. I will, um, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. Um, it had all the uh, it had all the right kind of themes that I like to look for in a filler episode of a uh, superhero cartoon. Um, I mean, actually, it's, it's probably a bit, bit, a uh, bit harsh to call it a filler episode because there's plenty of content here. Uh, which does get referenced back again in future episodes. So it's an episode where you really got to keep your eyes open and look to try and catch every little bit here and there. Um, but, you know, there's, there's nothing ground-shaking as far as uh, continuity-altering uh, events goes, but it's a powerful episode in its own right. Yeah, it's not a filler episode. It's a scaffolding episode where they're building all this stuff up. So in the next episode, when they call back to it, oh, look, I remember that because I watched the last episode. But we are talking about episode six of season one of Invincible, You Look Kind of Dead, which was directed by Paul Firminger uh, and Jeff Allen and was written by Curtis Gwynn as well as Robert Kirkman and Ryan Otley. And, um, oh, I never remember the first person. I feel so, so bad. Either way. (laughs) Uh, But in this episode, Mark joins William and Amber on a campus visit to Upstate University, hoping to discover a new future for himself. Debbie makes her own disturbing discovery. Is it me or is it getting more soap opera, soap operatic with these descriptions? It may be. I mean, uh, I must admit, I'm personally very woefully uneducated when it comes to um, soap opera cinema and whatnot. Um, so I'll have to take your word for it there, Jeremy. Um, but yeah, you, you know, not, you know, Mark and Amber and uh, William, William's the name of their, their other friend, Yeah, his, his yeah, friend William. is William. Yeah, yeah. William's such um, a non-entity you know. in this show, which is such a disappointment. Like, he's, he's a character in the comics and a pretty good one too. But so much stuff mm. is going on in this show that William is just kind of pushed to this tertiary, tertiary role. Like, not even a tertiary role, like a... I don't know what's below tertiary, but it's that, that he is basically a non-entity. And a couple of times he's shown up, I'm like, who the hell is that? Oh, wait, that's William. <laughs> I remember that guy yeah. from like episode two. And uh, ironically, though, he's the uh, he's the catalyst uh, for this episode's little adventure. Um, you know, he is. For, you know, I mean, obviously they're going to visit this upstate university at his behest. Um, you know, and nothing could possibly go wrong when they go to check out this, uh, this university tour. Um, you know, Willie wants to go there yes. because the man that he's in love with is a university senior there or whatnot. And, uh, he just wants to go visit, um, his crush. Mm-hmm. I want to point out that this is actually like a really sweet, important thing because so far what we've seen of William is that he is gay and he is horny. That's kind of his, his storyline at this point that he's like oh look at these how hot these guys are and things like that sure he's hot and all and that mustache Uh. yeah he's also been proven to be a very i think a very strong and um moral uh or ethically powerful friend um for for mark as well 
I don't know. I don't know if he's actually been in it that often enough to be this this moral center for Mark. Like he's been in a couple of episodes. He was there in the first episode when Mark was getting the shit kicked out of him. He was there when they were preparing for Amber's or the date with Amber. He was like saying, "No, no, you need to clean up the room this fashion so she doesn't think this about you." And it's like he's he's helpful. He's a good friend, but he hasn't been the spark of humanity that say Debbie is to Omni Man. He's just he's just kind of there. But I think this comes through in this episode that he has a lot more depth. And mm-hmm. we see it that he's not just this social butterfly, he's not just this this pretty thing that um that is interested in boys because he's really into this guy they go and see. And he kind of show he has this this aspect of no no he's just this cute guy that I like and I'd really like it if I go up there but it feels like there's something a little bit deeper there's like a lot more emotion in the storyline than that concept and I think this is where we start to see that for William it's because we haven't before I really don't feel that we have seen that ethical center for Mark because Mark's the main character. Mm. I think it, it certainly hasn't really been emphasised, uh, but I think that there were enough um, very brief um, shots or scenes where you know Mark, um, where William would always you know be chatting with Mark and be like, you know, if something's wrong, you can talk to me. Um, or, you yeah. know, when he's talking about the relationship with Amber and he's always, you know, kind of encouraging him more so. It always comes across as he's more encouraging than egging on. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it has it certainly hasn't been emphasised. I kind of felt like I picked up on it a bit, but um, this is the episode where uh, William really gets given his personality, though for sure. Yeah, and William, he's awesome. He really is. William's honestly one of my favourite characters. I think it's only through the comics as well. William was kind of that that touchstone that we don't often see, and I think his um, mm. his characterization is. Not not being left beside, but his um, his development has been left aside because they've got to fit a lot into this episode. Oh, sorry, into this show, this this season, and hopefully we'll see more of him in future episodes. But let's talk about the episode itself because um, it opens up. This opening felt to me like it was a Buffy episode, where it's got like three college like sorority girls walking on campus and then there's like the fake ad of something's in the bushes but it's just some drunk entitled frat guy whose dad pays all this money to get him into university who's uh who's trying to fuck with them. that and- said with that said all our listeners out there especially our female identifying listeners in universities and all over the world drunken frat boys can be dangerous don't you ever don't you ever forget yes. it no drunken frat boys are the worst well they just Frat boy. No, you know what? That's not fair. Not all frat boys are dangerous. Not all frat boys. That's our hashtag for the episode. Um, (laughs) I'm glad I took a stand on that point. Yeah. This is where the hill I'm going to die on. Not all frat boys. Sure. No, it's... (laughs) Well, we get given given the two extremes. We get given the worst... One of the worst examples of frat boys at the very, very start. But then very soon after, we're introduced to one of the best versions of our frat boys, which is the man that Mark's been... That William is in love with. And uh, that guy's... I mean, Mark Mark could be in love with him too. He is great. So (laughs) we don't know what's going on with Mark. Yeah, yeah. You can't can't fault Rick. You can never fault Rick. Uh, So yeah, the frat boy stumbles out of the bushes... And as the the sorority girls leave him entirely, and he's like, "I'm going to keep drinking. It's fine. You'll be back." Someone jump like some jumps him, sticks a needle in his neck, and he wakes up in this laboratory. Um, 
strapped to a table with all these like dead cyborg bodies around him and someone's removed his arm it's uh, i fucking hate this scene but there's some great lines what's going on you're going through a metamorphosis a miracle that will take you from useless boil on the behind of this crooked world to a brave explorer charting a shining future for all humanity. Nerd! <laughs> Who talks like that? You do. You're a nerd, nerd. Yeah, there's a little bit of poetic irony in there um, where the drunken frat boy is drugged and taken advantage of. Um, but, oh, yeah. you know, in any case. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, um, the limitations of animation, um, I think, kind of made that this scene... Um, I think it wanted to be horrifying, but, you know, the limitations of animation don't really uh, make it so. It it certainly has the impact of going like, oh, right, yeah, this is some pretty, pretty nasty shit that's happening down here. Um, You know, certainly uh, someone's going to have to do something about this. This is definitely going to be a a significant threat to the superhero superhero community and, 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 you know, the university community and whatnot. Um, But, you know... uh, you don't really get too... It doesn't hit too hard because obviously it's the first scene of the episode and it's setting up uh, for what's going to be happening throughout the rest of it. Um, and See, it doesn't take very long disagree. before it I was away. watching... Yeah? I completely disagree. I was watching this this scene and I was just like, ah, that is like my body horror that I do not want. That I was like, nope, nope, nope. This is a creepy, horrible thing. I don't want to see it. Um, like, there's... Uh, content warning for body horror i guess um so skip ahead if if you're not in you're not interested probably about 90 seconds or so where he looks down and like tries to raise his arm and it's the hook instead and that oh god no no i couldn't i couldn't deal with that that was really fucking creepy to me it didn't matter that it was animated it's like just that that concept mm. of this you you wake up and your body is no longer your body that was really fucking not triggering to me but it could be for someone else and i don't think i think the animation didn't detract from that level of horror that we were meant to feel from it i think it was so mental in that thing that that having it as a live action piece mm. would have just um increased it certainly but not not to the extent that um it would have changed mm. significantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the there's a, there's always going to be a special elevation um, of horror when it comes to body horror because uh, the you know it's 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 a human instinct, right, to be terrified yeah. of things that are external to us. You know, I'm arachnophobic and I'm terrified of heights. These things are external to me. And uh, thus, you know, it's um, it's always going to be possible for me to remove myself from environments where I don't have to deal with these things I'm terrified of. I can run away from a spider, or I can, you know, take an elevator down to the ground floor if I'm in a if I'm in a building that's too yeah. tall. Um, however, body horror when it's your own body that's uh, beginning to turn away uh, from you and you know turn into horrifying things, you can't escape that, and that's always going to be a special elevation of horror. When it comes to how this episode did it, um, I feel that their animation style, and this is not a criticism um, of the the theme or anything like that, but if I was to compare it to something like the the manga works of uh, the the oh, manga God, okay. writer and artist, uh, yeah, the manga writer and artist Junji Ito, um, who's basically like the gold standard of um, cosmic and unexplainable body horror. Um, 
you know the 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 animation style of this one here and the even when even when rick i mean not rick uh, even when this frat boy is um you know distressed and you know in the situation that he's in uh the voice acting involved in the animation style still kind of gave it a certain level of brevity um yeah you know the the animation style other animation styles um i feel would have had a heavier impact when it comes to conveying grim sense of horror and uh terror and um you know the the body morph the body morphology having that kind of sinister um impact it's a very very powerful theme and uh yeah. I'm, I'm not criticizing this show that um you know that the way that it did it wasn't good because the way that it did it was brilliant for its style um but I feel like the more I talk about it, the more I sound like I'm criticizing it. <laughs> I kind of want to cut it off there because I'm like, you know, it's it, it gets its point across for sure. I think I, I see what you're saying. And I think it does because of the, I guess, how the show's been marketed, how the, not marketed, how the show's been presented so far in other episodes and for this episode and this writing and everything to do with it, it kind of cheapens that horror that... Um, it is still wacky superhero hijinks. Like it's it's a superhero universe, mm. and it's almost blasé because we've seen in previous episodes, and we saw the guardians get slaughtered. We saw civilians popping, like when the the alien showed up in in episode two. We've seen Mark get the shit kicked out of him in the previous episode. So this is just like, oh yeah, yeah, that happened too. And then we can't forget that there are other characters in this show, like Robot, and like a few of those villains that have those big mechanical arms that, you know, shoot down buildings and stuff like that. There's plenty of other cyborgs or robot, like full-fledged robots, sentient robots in this um, in this show, uh, that seeing a guy get a robotic arm, maybe some of the impact is taken away from that as a result as well. But it's the theme that is the uh, the, the real focus of the scene here, and that there are, there's people yeah. being taken, stolen, and kidnapped, and uh, being forcibly, uh, physically altered against their will into um, into crude and uh, violent and uh, unattractive looking. And I say unattractive in terms of if I wanted to be a cyborg, I'd want to look more like RoboCop, right? Then look like one looks of like these cyborgs. But like an ugly version of Robocop, you know? If Robocop was a 10, yeah. these cyborgs are a 3. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think it's a good a good segue because we get this after such a huge, huge cliffhanger in the last episode of Mark and the Guardians getting, or the new Guardians getting their asses kicked and getting medivaced out. And then we start off with this and we see this, this frat guy get cyborged. And then we go to the results of um, of the the beat down and we see all the new guardians and Mark being injured. And it's this, these two different surgeries of becoming the monster mm. and saving the heroes. And I just like that, that element. Cause we've already kind of set up like, this is the worst possible thing for this guy. This is his body horror of, Oh my God, something horrible's happened. Then we jump over to, well, what's going to happen to our heroes if they've just done, if the show has just done this to some, some random, and we know this is a show where bad things can happen to people. How's Monster Girl going to survive? What are they going to do with Mark? That's a very good point in that this show did establish very well and very early. Yeah, bad things can happen to main characters. 
They kind of Game of Thrones it right at the very start for us. <laughs> Which it's it's interesting. Like I like this scene with the the heroes because it does create that sense of urgency, and you've already got like the, not the adrenaline certainly, but you're you're worried um, because of what you've already seen because of that that thread of horror going through you from from the earlier scene. But we see you know Monster Girl. Um, keeps transforming when they try to try to make a like try to put drips in and things like that which makes it even worse for them they don't know how to to fix her uh, and robot shows up and was like no no i can help and black sansom just fucking flat lines it's like have they just killed another former guardian and mark i feels like the one that we don't actually see that much of because he's in surgery and debbie and nolan are arguing but we don't see the argument it's like we've seen enough of them that we know what they're arguing about. But then Mark just wakes up. And it's like it's six days later and Mark's mm-hmm. awake and it's like we've had this really tense, tense thing. And it's this great build up because we've had the the scene with the frat boy. We've got the scene with everyone rushing around in the ER. We've got like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then Mark just kind of fades out. And we see the argument. We're like, oh, my God, this is going to be a big thing. And then it's just, no, no, he's awake. He's OK. He's alive. And it's a great come down. Mm-hmm. I love that that element. Oh yeah, and seeing all these uh, all these NPCs, you know the the global yeah. defense agency surgeons, the doctors running around, and then the people on the operating tables, the heroes on the operating tables trying to cling to life. It um it really gave me a vibe of this is almost like a skill check um, challenge. Yeah. Uh, seen in a D&D game where you got three different heroes that are desperately trying to survive, but they're all below zero. And then you've got all these uh, people running around attempting all these medicine checks on them to try and stabilise them and things like that. And everybody's failing and failing and failing. And um, at some point, um, it kind of makes you feel like uh, Mark failed um, that third <laughs> uh, stabilisation check because, yep, disappears, gone, see you later. And then six days later, he wakes up and it's like, okay, so, you know, he, he did survive in the end. He did pass his medicine checks. But, um, yeah, it, it definitely gave me a vibe of... Um, you know, parts, you know, like a and d party, half of the adventurers go down as a result of a massive um, challenging encounter and the uh, the rest of the um, party and uh, NPCs are trying to assist in trying to get them back, but they just failed so many roles in the fight and in their own, like, death, um, death roll checks and everything that things just ended up very, very poorly for them all. But, um... Luckily, it's a happy ending. You could almost make it like a resurrection ritual. Like, it's not even this is them struggling to, to keep the person alive. This is struggling to bring them back. The per- Mark's died in this, like, well, you know, our little hypothetical situation. Yes, he got Mark's revivified. Has died. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, no, no, we've got to grab his soul. We've got to bring him back. And fuck, how do I do this? I don't know what's going on. And if you can get that... Quick, somebody get me 300 GP worth of diamonds. <laughs> Stat! Oh, nurse, I'm gonna need. I'm gonna need a pearl worth exactly a thousand gold. Uh, I yeah, I think that's a really great way to create that sense of urgency of just going going around the table, going you, what are you doing? You, what are you doing? You, what are you doing? Okay, roll for it. Oh, you failed. Oh, you got dead. Yeah, that's a really cool way of of creating that urgency in a skill challenge. I think it's a a, a really good idea. Wait, um, I've got it. I've just figured it out. Black Samson is a paladin that he used divine intervention to get his powers back and come back to life <laughs> in his final check. There you go. Yeah, 
That's great. I didn't realize what I was rewatching. I just assumed he got his powers back immediately. And it was only once I was looking through my notes, I realized that he doesn't actually get his powers back until like later in the episode. He's been unconscious for like these six days after Mark wakes up. So yeah. I thought he flatlines and then there's like this burst of light and he's back. But that actually happens a little bit later. And it's like, well, it's pretty much the same thing. It's just slightly later on. But yeah, I I do like that. I think that's very comic booky as well, that something happens and for some reason powers come back online. It's like, all right, cool. I guess you got powers again. It's very, it feels like almost a DC like um, cyborg Superman or like a whole bunch of all the, the DC characters where it's like, oh yeah, and then they got powers and now he's a superhero. And it's like, sure, sure, why not? Yeah. And you know, there was a very interesting little scene that happened here. Um, and, and this is after, you know, because um, interestingly enough, you know, Mark's in surgery and, you know, you see a shot of him lying on the table and they've got his abdomen wide open. And, you know, you can see the yeah. intestines and the stomach and everything. And it's just like, oh, okay. So, you know, proper, proper surgery here. And they talk about spinal cord yeah. damage and blah, blah, blah. But um, there was a very, very interesting little uh, additional scene in here with uh, Cecil and Nolan, Omni-Man, mm-hmm. um, having a brief conversation right outside the window of the, uh, you know, um, Mark's room. And, uh, you know, in, instead of asking about, um, you know, you, you notice that, I, and, you know, I, I might be wrong here, but I feel like Nolan didn't even ask what Mark's chances were. He didn't ask him how he was doing or anything like that. Nolan just kind of went straight to, you know, the the conversation line with Cecil. Um, he turned to Cecil and he said, uh, "Any work tracking down Dark Blood, or has Dark Blood given up the information yet?" And you and you think back last episode or two episodes ago, however long it was, Cecil exercised Dark Blood entirely. He needed Dark Blood out of the way. Um, he needed Dark Blood to stop interfering because he needed because Cecil needs to handle this Omni-Man problem of the murders uh, in his own way. But Dark Blood wouldn't, you know, um, play play on the team. You know, Dark Blood's a, a solo runner. So Cecil actually completely got rid of Dark Blood by exercising him and sending him to hell by use of a, an ancient ritual. You hate to see it. My boy Damien Dark Blood getting screwed over that way. Yeah, I reckon. Uh, but anyway, Nolan doesn't know that's what Cecil did, right? Um, Nolan still thinks that uh, Dark Blood is still, um, you know, being held prisoner and being interrogated uh, by the GDA. So Nolan goes and he, and instead of asking about how Mark's doing, what are Mark's chances, how's my son, instead of asking all of that, he goes to Cecil and he asks, has Dark Blood given up the info yet? You know, um, and you know Cecil keeps that exorcism under wraps. He uh, keeps that a secret from Nolan deliberately. And he says, you know, you know what Dark Blood's like, you know, even when he wants to talk, he doesn't say much. So, you know, we'll eventually get it out of him, surely. Um, but he he, de- he definitely keeps Nolan in the dark about the fact that, Dark, no pun intended, Dark Blood's no longer around anymore. But yeah. Dark Blood crack yet? You know him. He barely talks when he wants to. Let me take a swing. I'll make him talk. As fascinating as it would be to watch an unstoppable force meet an immovable object, I prefer to keep these kind of things in-house. Did he do it? Did he murder the Guardians? We don't know. What's more interesting to me is why he would do it. He's a demon. Here's your why. I thought I knew him. That's all. 
I think that's a really telling thing because you could see it as, well, Nolan's just looking at it, a way to distract himself from the fact that his son's in surgery. But there's also that element of Nolan is thinking about himself. It's like at the moment, the, um, the current mm-hmm. story is Damien Darkblood killed the Guardians and Nolan is kind of off the hook for the suspicions. But he, he needs to know, um, do I need to keep, you know, setting this guy up or can I just let it, let it drop? So he's thinking more about himself right now than Mark. And there is that element, because we know who Nolan is, he does not give a shit. If Mark hasn't been able to stand up to this, he's weak. Fuck it. I'll just give up on that one. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what he did in the last episode. He saw Mark there. He saw Mark getting injured and he just went, yep, I'm not going to help. And it's like, fucking hell. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we're, I think we're leaning more towards hating Nolan in this scene. Because it's, it's that subtle undercurrent that um, we don't really think about him asking about Mark. Because it's like, yeah, we do care about what the Guardians, what happened with them and, and what's going on. And it's a good little plot that's like, remember, these are, these are people. These are ways of, of humanizing mm-hmm. the story that's going on that um, maybe he should be asking about his son, but the fact that he doesn't is really telling about his character. Yeah, we see in a, in a later scene that Nolan and Debbie are, are fighting precisely for this, that it seems like Nolan doesn't care anymore, um, which is, yeah, I think everyone's starting to, to realize what kind of person Nolan really is because it hasn't been there before. So yeah, it, does, it, it moves the Guardian plot along as well. Yeah, and, and in consideration of that, um, you know, it goes, you know, the first few minutes, we get a lot of different cut scenes. I mean, sorry, no, we don't get a lot of different cut scenes, but it cuts between scenes a lot, again. And that again, that's a frequent yes. theme throughout this episode. Um, you get two or three minutes at most um, of each scene before it cuts to another part of the town or another part of the world, other characters, things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you get... Firstly, you're at the university, then a few minutes later you're in the sewers, then a few minutes later you're in the hospital, then a couple of seconds later you're at back at our um, Mark and Amber meeting at our Amber's house, and then all of a sudden you're, you're next seeing even even Mark talk a little bit, and then after that you then go to the university, and et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole lot of different um, uh, cuts between scenes here that kind of mix everything a lot. So maybe, like we did in the previous episode, um, perhaps we focus on each uh, individual kind of plot line and uh, to kind of keep it tidy and uh, focus on that, focus on resolving one before we move on to the last one. And maybe we make the uh, the Mark plot line the last one we talk about because the other stuff is all yep. kind of the scaffolding stuff. It's talky. You know, yeah. It's talky-talky and philosophy. Oh, for sure. For... Um... Which I think they're, they're fantastic mm-hmm. scenes. Um, but yeah, let's look at the, the Debbie Nolan storyline, first of all, since we were just talking about Nolan, because it's not mm-hmm. a, a big storyline. This one's an intense. Yeah, it's intense. It's very intense, but not a lot happens because, like we were saying, like they've seen, we've seen them arguing in the hospital. We see them arguing after Mark and William and, and Amber head off to the university. And Debbie kind of storms off at the end of that argument and Nolan's looking around and he finds a bag, which is the same bag that um, that the costume was in. Am I thinking of something else? No, you're right. When we thought, well, he thought the costume was in that. Uh, and 
but what's actually happened is she's already taken the costume to see art um the the costume maker the played by mark hamill we'll just point out the the joker himself uh and luke skywalker and all the rest mm-hmm. which i'm not quite sure why she took um took it to him more so than like cecil or the gda or anything like i guess she could trust him a little bit more to do the analysis. It's like he hasn't been established quite well enough as the the science guy for them all. I like it. I'm really glad he's in it, and I yeah. think it's a cool scene. It's just, why? why? I kind of feel like it was the rule of escalation. Um, if yeah. she was to take it to Cecil and the GDA, um, then I feel like then that would escalate things incredibly far, right? Because one of the big things here is that the reason the GDA, and Cecil has said this to, um, I forget who he said it to, I think he said it to um, to Don, you know, uh, what's it, is his name Don, like his second Donald. in charge? Yeah. Donald, Donald, yeah, yeah. So he said this to him before in that he knows that, you know, he's deduced that Omni-Man was the killer. Omni-Man is the one that killed the, um, the, the Guardians of the Globe, right? He just doesn't yeah. know why. And he's really got to figure out why. And the other thing that he knows is that if Omni-Man decides to go berserk and unleash on everybody, they're very, very realistically, very, very possibly not going to be able to stop him. Um, So it's it's like the Sword of Damocles, like an apocalyptic level threat hanging over Cecil's head at the moment. And I think Debbie knew that or has has a level of recognition of that. But if she takes it to the costume maker and she finds out there, then the escalation doesn't really happen, you know? If Omni-Man was to find out what's going on in clues, then, you know, he kills, you know, he the worst he can do there, reasonably expecting, you know, we can't really predict what Omni-Man's going to do at any time now. Um, but realistically speaking, you would think that if Omni-Man wanted to keep his charade up, uh, the worst he could do out of that is that he would kill the costume maker and he would kill Debbie... And um, you know there will be some sort of cover-up story that he that he would make up to try and keep out of the keep out of the limelight again. Um, but you know by doing that instead of going to the GDA, um, Debbie kind of minimizes uh, you know that yeah. potential escalation that might happen. Uh, that's the best explanation I've got for it. <laughs> anyway, you know I think that's I think that's a really good explanation. I think that's very true that she doesn't want to go to DeathCon highest level whatever it is deathcon one deathcon four i can't remember but she doesn't want to take it to cecil either because there's she doesn't trust cecil she doesn't trust nolan she doesn't trust cecil art is a third party that has no stake in this little thing because cecil's like debbie you can't trust nolan and nolan's like no debbie you can't trust cecil but art art just another guy it's like it's what he has no stake in it. It's like he wants to protect Nolan, but he also wants to help Debbie, and he also wants to be on the good side for Cecil because he kind of works. It's this this uh, this neutral third party, which is really good. It's useful that he's there, but he does tell her, "Yeah, all these blood splatters. Looks like Nolan killed them. He was the one that struck first. Um, and then we see that Nolan is listening." using his his super powered mm-hmm. hearing he knows exactly what happened and this this is a, a really cool way of freaking out players too i think when you need to find out that the person you're hiding from knows exactly where you are and they're choosing not to do anything yet 
That's terrifying. There's a little bit of, oh, well, nothing we can do matters. But if you're thinking about it, it's like, well, what do we need to do? How do we escape this person if they can do all these things? And it's that sense of horror again that you really want to get into some games. And just that shot of Nolan being there, and he now knows. He knows that Debbie's betrayed him. He knows Art's betrayed him too, because Art was his best friend. And it's, no, it's a great scene. And it is kind of that last nail in the coffin for Debbie as well, going, I suspected, I thought I didn't want to believe, but now I have definitive proof that Nolan killed them, and I need to know why as well. And it even makes mm-hmm. it even more creepy when the next scene we see with them, Art's kind of like closing up and Nolan shows up with a six pack of beer. And they just kind of, he comes up and he's like, hey, yeah. let's hang out. Talk about old times. What's the matter, Art? You seem a little nervous. No, no, just uh, tired. Lots of repairs this week. I bet. It's funny how quickly things can fall apart. One day, it seems like you have all the time in the world, and then the next, it's gone. Oh. Yeah, don't listen to me. I just wanted to swing by and make sure our partnership is still going strong. Like you said, never piss off your tailor, right? You trust. You always have my back, don't you, Art? Do you reckon Omni-Man has the has superpowers smelling? Because uh, he would have been able to smell uh, the costume maker shit his pants at that very moment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. It's... Yeah, I don't I don't know what the purpose of this scene is beyond making Nolan look like a huge dick. Cuz he doesn't he doesn't even threaten Art. It's like there's no purpose to him going to Art and saying this to him and being like, "Hey, I know well, I I kind of know that that you know." He doesn't like hurt him or anything. He's just like he's there. You're right. He doesn't threaten him. He certainly does intimidate though <laughs> like mm. you see it in his um in his mannerisms the way he holds eye contact too long after making a suggestive comment about trust um yeah. you know or uh, the way that he goes to hand over a beer to to the you know to the costume maker and he holds onto that beer for a second too long before he lets go and lets the other guy take it um so there's definitely that uh a ver- there's a very strong air of that intimidation factor in this interaction here and um the the costume maker he feels it you know he gets it he's he is thoroughly intimidated um but that seems to be the only thing that um nolan wanted to achieve here is just uh you know kind of scare the pants off this guy I guess that's maybe why he does it. He wants to intimidate Art into not going to Cecil with it. That, like, this is definitive proof. Mm. And while Debbie knows, Cecil doesn't. Like, Cecil doesn't... Like, Cecil has proof. He knows already. But Nolan doesn't know that. And it's like, well, if I can tell Art not to do anything about it, my cover's safe. I don't have to deal with the GDA now. I can just, you know, intimidate um, intimidate Art into not saying anything. It's like, well, it's good. I'm done. I don't have to worry about this. And Debbie, I'll deal with later. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's de-escalating the situation for him without having to kill someone he actually likes yeah. talking to, it seems. Yeah. And, you know, the way that this kind of felt like for me, 
imagine at the tabletop playing a game of D and D, uh, and you know a player character and is conversing with an NPC. In this case, Nolan is the NPC. You know the overly powerful um, overlord of the land and whatnot. And uh, you know he sits down to chat with your player character and intimidates. You have to. He rolls an intimidation check. You roll. You know the the defensive roll against it, and uh, you fail. And you're thoroughly intimidated by this character. That's not the first one. He then goes again and again and again. And you're just failing the defense against these intimidation checks again and again and again. um, Until basically he decides to just stand up and walk out and leave you a quivering mess on the the tavern floor, you know? Yeah. And just that that element of power. It's like, I could destroy you. I'm choosing not to. Mm -hmm. Players hate that. They hate that. They hate feeling powerless in their game. Oh, yeah. But you know who's not intimidated by Nolan? Debbie. <laughs> is, it, is it Debbie? Yeah, Debbie's a fucking badass. Oh, yeah. So uh, after this, you know, after this uh, conversation that um, that Nolan has with Art, he then goes home. Um, he goes back to, uh, you know, he goes back to back to the home where, where, where Debbie is. Uh, Mark is no longer there because he's, he's gone to leave on his road trip to go check out that university. But um, so it's it's just Debbie and Nolan at home alone, and he walks in, and she's crying over a bottle of wine in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as he walks in, you know Debbie turns to him, and she's just she's weeping and she's angry and she's uh, looking like she's feeling betrayed, as as you do. And uh, she turns, and she just says, "Right," she says straight out there, "Why did you do this? How could you? I know you lied to me. How could you do this?" And he and you know Nolan tries to play it off, you know, do the gaslight thing. You're drunk. Let's talk about this in the morning. You need to you need to calm yourself down. Uh, but then she throws a bottle of wine at him. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, little Debbie, the little unpowered, stock standard genetic human Debbie, throws a bottle of wine at Evil Omni Man and says, "Fuck you, Nolan." I fucking love that shot because it's not even. It's not even her. You don't see her throw it. You just see Nolan, and then the bottle shatters by his head, and you're like, "Oh fuck!" She just threw it at his head. That's like, yeah. I mean, she knows it's it's Omni Man. It's not going to hurt him, but she wants to hurt him, and it's it's so cool. It's like, yeah, fuck, fuck you, Nolan. Like Debbie's the the best, and then she just kind of leaves. She goes to bed, and he sits there in the darkness. He like mm-hmm. punches the wall, like the most immature, childish thing, and he any guy can do but he puts his fist through his wall the wall because it's omni-man and then he just sits there in the darkness and he like he puts his head in his hands really powerful shot of him this ultimate superpower dude unable to explain to his wife why he killed his friends and why he's doing these things and yeah it's not even it's he doesn't there is that element of threat to it like it feels like Debbie could be in danger. We've seen what he can do in the past, but the fact that he just kind of sits down and it seems like he's just sitting there thinking, and it's like that's a very human response. That he's just I I don't know what yeah. to do. Yeah, but it sits down, looks troubled and worried and sad, and puts his head in his hands, and it's just like, how do we interpret that? Is it yeah. frustration? Is it sadness? Is it worry? Is it regret? We don't really know yet, do we? But um, he at least shows a level of emotional response 
to what we currently think is the love of his life, throwing a bottle of wine at his head and saying, fuck you, Nolan, you know? Um, so, you know, it, a level of emotional response is something we didn't really get from him anything yet. If, if you think back to the, to the other kinds of interactions that Nolan's had in the series thus far, all the way up to episode six, um, he doesn't really have much of an emotional reaction to anything aside from when he might get a bit frustrated at something and unleash, right? Um, he shows a little bit of yeah. pride or a little bit of amusement at, uh, you know, Nolan, I mean, at uh, Mark, you know, doing the whole baby superhero stand, learning to stand up for the first time. Um, but this is the first, I think this is, this is very much the first real emotional, um, scene we've seen, um, uh, Nolan really display. Even when he killed off all the guardians of the globe in the first episode in cold blood murder, it was very, very emotionless, you know, never said a word, never frowned, never smiled, um, never showed any satisfaction in what he was doing. He just walked in and did it, walked out or collapsed at the end anyway, but you know. So, first real emotion that we've seen from Nolan. Yeah, I think this is a really... I mean, we see him angry a couple of times when he's arguing, like, with Debbie. Again, in the hospital, he, he's, like, shouting back at her. But that's... It's, again, a very personal, very human response that we're seeing him as a husband. We're not seeing him as a superhero. We're not seeing him as a villain. We're seeing him as someone who has betrayed trust, as... Yeah, we're seeing that finally breaking down the barriers that have been put up. And it's really not moving, but it's certainly a a side that we haven't seen before. But that's kind of it for their storyline for this episode. um, Do you want to go back and quickly talk about the Mauler Twins plot or do you want to do the uh, the Amber plot? Not the Amber plot, the Eve plot. Let's do the twins first. Twins are fun. The Mauler twins show up briefly in this episode. There's like two scenes, I think, um, which is disappointing because they're some of my favorite characters ever. Yeah, there's there's one scene where they're talking with Robot and Robot basically shows up and is like, so how's the cloning process going? Here's what I promised you. Oh, if They realize that if Robot's smarter than them, they're going to need some some backup. They're going to need some some insurance and that they need shovels for that which is what we see in the in the post-credits sequence, them getting that insurance, and that's their second scene. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, I don't think we quite find out what it is that they're looking to build. Um, what we do get is, you know, when they're discussing payment, you know, um, Robot tells them you'll get paid when you finish the work and not beforehand. Um, you'll only get the schematics once I've got what I need from you. So when you hear the word schematics, you're like, right, okay. They're trying to build something that they need and Robot has what they need. So um, they're not after money. Uh, they're not after, um, you know, any kind of, you know, monetary value as a result of payment, but they're after a tool or a machine or something like that. Um, so you definitely get that vibe. Which is very in line with their their aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 again a good credit or a good emphasis to their intelligence levels, because um, you know if we if I can use a quote from one of my favorite video games of all time, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, uh, the head of the Tremere Chantry, uh, Maximilian Strauss, um, presents the the player character with a choice uh, after completing a quest for him. He says, "Okay, here's what I can do for you. I can give you as a reward for your work." 
I can either give you a bunch of money or I can give you a relic from the Tremere um, Chantry. And uh, you tell me which one you want. And if you choose the money, he's quite disappointed in you, but he gives it to you. If you choose the relic, he says, very good. You show wisdom for true power lies not in wealth, but in the things that it affords us, you know? Um, so that's yeah. a good good, good showing for the Mola twins is that, you know, they, um, they're looking beyond just getting rich. They're, they they clearly now we know they have ambitions beyond uh, just uh, the the fiscal you know. It's interesting that I'd love to go into discussion of the Mola twins in depth at some point. I think knowing what I know about them, I suspect when season two comes out, we'll talk more about the Mola twins there, because we're not really sure what they want through the series. Like in the first episode, they were making a statement that the president was going after them, and so they go after the president and say, "Hey, look." we can get to you. And then they're captured. And after that, their plot is basically, we want to stay free. We want to, to get the stuff we want. We were like, we've broken out of prison. Cool. Well, now my brother's dead. So I've got to clone him. That's kind of my arc until this point. Now that he's back, robot shows up. and We've got to do this. And we don't know what they want overall. Once they're out of the immediate situation, what do the Mauler twins want? I have a question for you as somebody that has yeah. read the comics um and you know you can you can keep this spoiler free in your answer uh but when it comes to the mauler twins and their power level are they a threat to omni-man i have i ask you that question can if it was just omni-man versus the two mauler twins um do the mauler twins stand a chance of coming out victorious against omni-man i don't remember but i would say okay. probably not I think they might be able to create a device which would threaten him and slow him down. Um, but that's about it. Gotcha. Yeah, but honestly, don't remember. Go read the comics, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Because their second scene was also the post credit scene. Yeah. Yeah, I love this second this second scene. It's There's a reason why I love it. Um, simply we see it's barely, they're barely in it. Because what the the post credit scene is two teenagers digging up a grave and they're digging it up. It's the immortal's grave. And one of them's like, yeah, if we drink, drink from his skull, we get his powers. That's how it works, right? What I really love is the second one is the son of the, the security guard that we saw in the very first scene in the very first episode, the one that got attacked by the Mauler twins. It's like this through line who we saw again in, in, London, where the bag of trash that Mark threw up in the air in the first episode lands and nearly crushes them. It's like this this total through line of this is another character who plays no role beyond being there, like being occasionally present at some of these events, but exists in the world. It's the perfect use of an NPC of just making this a fully realized thing. The fact that they they know where the real mortal's body is, is because this kid his dad is part of the secret service. It's like, well, of course he's there because that makes sense for him to be there. It's creating this fully realized environment for players to be in. In this case, the players being the Mauler twins uh, who show up and are like, yeah, we're going to need that body. And that's where it ends. It's like, what, what do they want the immortal for? But yeah, I think having a recurring NPC like that, who just kind of shows, has a little bit of an arc themselves. 
I think players really appreciate that. That there's a word for it. I guess that for sim- uh, that um, that level of immersion that you can give to a game where yeah, you go to the same shop and the same person is there. Well, this little post-credit scene um, also gives rise to one of my favourite things to use in an RPG, uh, and that yeah. is the red herring. You know, it's not a red herring if we. If we focus on the uh, the dialogue that the two teenagers, um, you know, are, are chatting about when the scene opens. I don't know, man. My stepdad could lose his job at the White House for this. Stop being a wuss, Matt. This is going to be epic. And when it's all over, we'll be the ones calling the shots. You sure it's going to work? You got the schnapps? We dig up the immortal, drink from his skull, and wham! We get his powers. Easy as shit, man. It's just a rumor. Dude, I saw it on Reddit. Don't believe everything you read on the internet, kid. There, there you go, right? I mean, I'm going to assume that this is obviously, like, completely ridiculous, like, you know, in terms of the, the notion of you drink from the immortal skull and then you get his powers. So I'm going to assume that that's complete nonsense. Um, well, how but, would hey, they what know? what do I really know? <laughs> well, if I'm going to assume that this is not how you get the immortal's powers. Right, and no. that this is just because uh, one of the uh, one of the kids says, you know, the, the the kid that you know wanted to do it was like, you know, believe me, I read it on Reddit, and uh, she's like, right, okay, <laughs> now, 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 this is bullshit. This is this is never going to work, right? Um, so that's um, so you see, you know, one of these kids was completely taken in and beguiled by a red herring of hey you know like listen to the urban myth of if you dig up the skull if you dig up a mortal's dead body and you drink from his skull you gain his powers it's online with the whole if you stand in front of a mirror and say candy man five times he'll pop up behind you you know um, those or, those kinds yeah. of things yeah yeah sometimes i like to use red herrings in my D games and um that they're they're always a little bit more believable because you know, people, you know, like players are generally smart enough to, to know when something absolutely completely stupid is being dangled in front of them. And they'll be like, no, nah, that's that's never going to be a thing. We're going to ignore that. Uh, but something simple, something believable and something completely within the realm of possibility uh, that they may wish to follow and untangle and, um, you know, see, see where it leads them. Um, my favourite red herring that I ever had, and I might have spoken about this in a previous episode, I'm not sure or not, was the wolf at night. Um, yes. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. yeah. During travel from, you know, one quest area to the next, they long rest at night, and then they, you know, I describe the scenery to them. They hear a wolf howling in the, in the far distance as the, the moon is overhead. And every single time they long rested in the wilderness after that, they were trying to track down this wolf, thinking that the wolf really <laughs> meant something significant. And, um, you know, and I, I, there was no pulling back the curtain for me on that one. I just let him run with it. And I was just like, it was, for me, it was always just me describing the scenery. Like, it was just, you know, <laughs> you, you go down for a long rest at night. But they they got, they heard me say that, they latched onto it, and then they wanted to follow it through to its conclusion. There never was going to be a conclusion. There was no, no nothing. No. There was nothing. It was you know. It was just a thing, and that's why my one of my favorite things is red herrings, um, because the the players yeah. get a hell of a lot of value out of it if done right. You know, um, you know they get a they get a little bit of personal investment into it, and if you handle it right, you know if they do follow it through, you you do have to be a little bit careful um, because if 
they follow red herrings through and it ends up being completely pointless for them. You know, like if, for example, if they hear about, oh, you know, the way to kill the, you know, the, the, the way to kill the vampire that's taken over the town is to find the uh, blessed holy stake that's, you know, at the bottom of Lake Benevolence or whatever. Um, and then, you know, they go down, they find the, the stake and then they go and use it and it does nothing then they're just like, oh, well, that was a complete fucking waste of our time. How ridiculous is that? But, you know, if you're, if you're more, if we are more careful about the way we handle the conclusion of these red herrings, then it's okay. In the, in the case of this show yeah. here, um, it was handled in a way that we got some more of the Mauler twins, which is always a good thing. And thus that red herring <laughs> was well worth it for us as viewers. I think a useful way for that red herring with the vampire example you just gave if they discover that, you know, the the lost sword of such and such is the only way to kill a vampire and they go and find the tomb of where the lost sword is supposed to be and it's not there, then they've invested a bit of time, but they've also ruled out that possibility. They haven't found a sword, which is then useless. It's like, cool, we've just gone and done the thing. Oh, it was a red herring? Well, shit. Now we're stuck with, with what we've got. We haven't actually lost anything because um, we've just kind of, we're back at square one all we've invested is time. It's like, that's kind of what you need to, to have with a red hand. Yeah. We'll, we'll do. I, I, I do kind of feel like the players do need to be a little bit more rewarded uh, for their efforts. Oh yeah. They get other stuff. Yeah. Like even if, you know, they go to find a sword in a tomb that ends up not being there. What if it's uh, something a little bit more along the lines of they go there and they find an old rusted and broken sword that is any beyond any hope of being reforged and is completely and totally useless. But they also find a journal of a previous adventurer mm. and the previous adventurer writes down the search for the sword was a complete and total failure and a waste of time. Uh, now I know that the only way to defeat the vampire is to, um, you know, burn his coffin while he sleeps in it. This I must now go do. And then they're like, oh, okay, so the sword was a bust, but hey, we got another idea now, you know? So then they can start yeah. formulating their own plan and invade the vampire's lair by daylight and burn the coffin and see if that works, you know? That's a good idea. I like that, that have them have the breadcrumbs and leading leading through the different um, the things they need to know. It kind of feels, speaking of breadcrumbs, it kind of feels that's how we get Eve's plot in this episode that we just kind of get little montages split between like split over like 10 minutes or so, but we get a really cool scene with her and her parents. And then after that, we just see her doing stuff and we don't actually get dialogue at all through most of it because it's just her by herself. Like we'll, we'll go through Eve's plot now. This is kind of what I'm segueing mm. into. Hopefully everyone realized that. So the first we see Eve is her talking with Mark after his injury. She's like, yeah, yeah, I covered for you with Amber. She thinks you got hit by a bus. Um, so she's not mad that you stood her up at the at the soup kitchen. But I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with my life. I'm not sure if I want to be a superhero anymore. And or I just kind of want to. It'd be cool if I went to college. Like, you're checking out colleges. That's cool. And Mark's kind of reconsidering superheroing as well. And then we have her scene with um, with her parents. And this is when I really noticed that they're calling her Samantha. Which I pointed out in the last episode that mm. she's Adam Eve to everyone. She's Eve to Mark. She's Eve to at school. But her parents call her Samantha. And that seems like that's actually her name. Um, and basically she's 
she's trying to leave home. She wants to go and see the world. Not see the world, but she wants to go and help people. She's realized, she went to the, the soup kitchen with Amber. She realized, I actually feel a lot of joy helping people in need. And I've got superpowers, so I can do that. And she's like, I'm just going to go out there and help. And her parents are the fucking worst. Her dad in particular is just, oh, there's that line. They just want her to have a normal life. I'm not going to watch you ruin your life on some hippy-dippy-find-yourself bullshit. Adam! I mean it. This is the opposite of what you should be doing with your life. And what would that be, Dad? You want a fresh start? Give up this superhero crap. You can't save the world, Samantha. It's going to get you killed. The worst day of my life was when you got powers. Wow, that hurts much more than I thought it would. I just want what's best for you. A normal life, a house, a husband, kids. That's what's best for you, Dad, not for me. Oh my God. It's, it's like, try to, try to understand your daughter. The thing that she feels is incredibly special about her, you see as the worst thing about her. It's, oh, it's, it's painful to watch. But mm-hmm. she just goes, fuck it, I'm gone, I'm out, see ya. Yeah, I mean, she does make an effort to try and, you know, explain it to them. You know, um, you know she, you know, because the, the dad at one point says to her, look, you know, I'm doing this for you. It's because I love you. I want you to be safe. Yeah. I want you to live a normal life. You know, get get a degree, get a husband, get a house, mm. blah, blah, blah. And she says, you know what, dad, that's the life you want for me. And that's not the life that I want for myself. I hope you can understand that. And he goes, he completely rebuffs it. He's just like, no, do what I say. And then she's like, yeah, no, no, see ya. And then she just flies away. Yeah. There's that element of, I am an adult and I know better because of what my choices are right. And you will follow my choices because they worked for me. And he, there's that complete lack of understanding of mm-hmm. who she is as a person. Who, what her desires are. And there's a great, great title of a Jeanette Winterson book called Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. And this is summed up perfectly in this scene that he wants mm. her to be normal. He wants her to get a job and get a career and get a husband like he did, like normal people do. And she's like, but I'm not normal. All these normal people, they don't have superpowers. I have superpowers. I need to do something with them. Otherwise, I'm not being me. And I love this arc in the comics again. We get kind of a condensed version of this because she flies off and she heads out into the forest. She uses her powers to build a little a little hut for herself to stay in. And basically she goes out and saves people. She stops floods. She creates rain so that farmers in need have, have water. She just does good things. And... Yeah, that's kind of her arc for this episode. We just kind of see her doing all these things. And when she does finally go to sleep at the end of the day, she smiles. And we realize, I mean, it's only been like a day, basically. But we realize this is what she wants to do. This is her helping people. And I think, well, fuck it. I'm going to talk about it now because she is the the character I would use. I would make into a um, into a character in one of my games because she is the perfect epitome of a paladin to me. It's like, this is the arc of somebody becoming a paladin. This is them realizing helping people feels good and going out of their way and not doing it for reward, not doing it for anything else. It's just, you need help, I will help you. 
And yeah, I like that we've seen that arc. She's not doing it because mm-hmm. she's got powers. It's just, you need help. I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. So I would use her as like, I like to do this if I create paladins myself, because I usually base paladins on Wonder Woman and Eve and, and She-Ra and all those kind of characters. I would love to see her as an NPC that a char- that the party comes across somebody who's just doing good by themselves. That just kind of does good without any need for reward. Is maybe someone helping out a village or if we're talking like a shadow run, just kind of disseminate, like running a soup kitchen. And they're good. They're able to protect the people around them, but they need extra help from the party. Like there's only so much you can do by yourself. Uh, but that that pure neutral goodness of them that do does good for good's sake rather than for anything else. I love that as an NPC. And I think parties can get behind it as well. I feel that they're people who you kind of trust. They become that mentor. Of, they'll give me missions and stuff and they'll kind of tut-tut when you murder the murder the goblins but it's it's like well you kind of had to yeah i I love that idea of a a paladin npc giving out quests and i think eve's a good example of how to make one of those Mm. and uh with the um with the scene where eve is you know when we get that montage scene of when eve goes out creates her little um tree house in the woods and goes and does her superhero stuff and um, is joyful as a result. Um, that's the that's the best scene or my or favourite scene that I picked for this episode as well, uh, because there's a lot of um, a lot of very good stuff in there uh, that can be unpacked for the benefit um, of viewers everywhere, right? Uh, viewers of the show, uh, because Eve uh, went through a bit of a period of great learning or self-realization you know she had the whole in previous episodes you know she found out that rex was cheating on her she ditched rex she then made the choice that joining the new guardians was not the best move for her um, because the way rex and duplicate were a part of it so she decided this is not for me um, I need to do what's right for me and not what, what's right for my bank account or what's right for my reputation. It is uh, my, you know, my mental health and, um, you know, my uh, self-esteem is worth more than that. So she bailed out. She went to go do what she wanted to do and she overcame the the barriers or the, the challenges that were put in her way. In this case, it was the resistance from her family. Uh, she had enough belief in herself to push through and continue doing what she needed to do next. And then when it came to doing what she wanted to do, right, and this is something that sets her apart from 99% of every other superhero in every comic line or company ever written, right? 99% of superheroes are what they are. They're not necessarily about what they do, right? Yeah. You think about your Spider-Mans, your Supermans, your Captain Americas, you know, your your Captain Marvels, all these other superheroes, right? Um, they are what they are, and things happen to them that they must deal with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Captain America might be the exception because he chose to volunteer for the army, um, you know, the United States Army in World War II. And he cheated his way to get in there just because he wanted to do some good for people. So he might be the exception. Um, but every other superhero is more about what they are than what they do. Because they often have very little choice in what it is that they do because things just happen to them. 
Do you know what I mean? Whereas Eve is focusing on the whole, um, what I do is more important, you know? Um, she decides that she is going to spend her time going out there and not waiting for an alien invasion, not waiting for a supervillain to terrorize the local town, uh, you know, not waiting for, um, you know, the, the next techno quantum virus to threaten humanity or any of that. Right. But she's like, you know what, at this very moment, I can step out the door and go do things to achieve my goals or to make me happier in doing what I want to do. And I don't need to wait for any of that. I can do it right now. And she shows an incredible level of uh, work ethic and dedication uh, to achieving those goals, what she wants to achieve. And that's a very good lesson uh, to a, a lot of um, impressionable viewers there, not just young viewers, also older viewers as well, in that it not only takes belief in yourself, but it also takes work ethic. And that's the part they always seem to leave out. Uh, you know, when you look yeah. at other comic lines. But Eve demonstrates here in that very short collection of montages and short scenes uh, that, you know, belief and work ethic uh, is are the two, two integral parts of being able to, you know, find happiness and joy and satisfaction in yourself um, rather than just sit there and wait for um, happenstance to make things work, you know? And this is why Eve is the best character and we love her forever. Oh, 100%. 100%. She is kind of a response to all the comments about Tony Stark and Batman being these super, like, billionaires who use their money to go around fighting bank robbers rather than actually changing the world for the better. And, like, Batman, you know, he's got trauma. I'll give him, I'll give Batman that one. And Iron Man, well, we kind of see it in the MCU that he's trying to develop clean power sources for himself to start with. But hopefully for the rest of the world eventually that he's using his brains for the world it's just he has to do that by punching an alien in the face um i yeah i think eve is that that great example of put your money where your mouth is if you have these things and you can make the world better don't do it just just go out and do it just have that work ethic of sticking around and and doing mm -hmm. the, the work that needs to be done don't do the flashy things. Just do the stuff that needs to be done. So, as I said before, we love Eve. We should have an Eve series. And um, there's not enough of her. But that's kind of... There's a couple of little other things, like the, the robot crush on Monster Girl deepens in a couple of, couple of uh, scenes. Um, but Monster Girl and Black Samson, they survive their injuries. Samson gets his powers back. Um, there's a super rare flower that robot retrieves to to help monster girls transformation so they can actually treat her but they both survive and then they come back and i think that's kind of where we need to get into the the meat of the episode with mark's storyline because i know you're gonna hate this storyline because it is superhero bullshit it's so much of secret identities and trust and fucking <laughs> bullshit that we've heard in previous episodes of you ranting about how dumb these, these soap opera plots are. And I agree, honestly. Um, yeah. This, this episode is a strong example. But at least there's a point to it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, at least in this episode, there's like, it, it doesn't just trail off into nothingness. Um, at least the, there's like at the end of this episode, Oh, it's not even at the end of the episode really, but um, there's a point to this. Like, in this instance yeah and I, 
I like that it's not wrapped up at the end of the episode either, because this is well. Let, let's get into it. This is the the storyline where Mark's secret identity is revealed to one of his friends, um, in this case William. But the fact that he is not around, the fact that he's got to go off and do superhero things, ruins his relationship with Amber, like utterly. And that's where it, it kind of ends the the episode with. Well, he hasn't fixed it. She's still fucking mad at him. And William understands, but but Amber does not. And that's very different from most of the times we see this, oh, they know my secret identity. Oh, I can't do this because of reasons. Normally there's an apology or something and, you know, it all gets wrapped up and it's like, well, I'm still mad at you, but I guess I still like you. It's like, no, she's mad. She's going to be mad for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, you're right. It's setting up other stuff and it's, it's great for that. There's a reason why all this stuff is in there. And mm-hmm. it has, that's why I forgive it in the earlier episodes. Cause it's building up to this. It's laying the groundwork. It's a scaffolding for all of, all of Amber's characterization, all the shit that Mark's done, the dumb, stupid things he's been doing leads up to this point of Amber finally going, no, fuck this shit. I've, I've had enough. Let's go through what what kind of happens in the the college storyline, I guess. That this is an eye-opening thing for Mark because he hasn't really thought about college before this. But when they show up, I mean, one of the things they see when they're wandering around the campus are missing person posters, which are not just the, uh, the frat boy that we saw earlier, but we also get to meet Rick. And Rick's amazing. We love Rick. Uh, the guy that Will's got this massive crush on and giving a tour of the campus. And it turns out that he's a pre-med student and all this other stuff. And we, there's a scene where they go to a medical lecture and they're talking about what's good for humanity and all these things. And basically Victor Von Doom stands up at the back and goes, no, no, humanity is a weakness. We're trying to remove humanity's weaknesses and make them better. I'm like, okay, Victor, I think he's Victor Von Sinclair or something. But it's basically Doom's origin stories from the Fantastic Four, where he almost he's even paired off against Rick, who's like the the super smart, good looking guy that, that this guy's like, no, no, you're it. It's we're very clearly realizing, yeah, this is the guy that's stealing people from the campus and turning them into cyborgs. It's like there's there's no there's no way it's not this guy. Um, but yeah, I like that scene anyway. I think it's a, a fun little one. When I started my, writing my notes on the episode, I didn't even bother picking up this character's name. If I'm honest, I just started writing him down as evil genius. And, um, I just realized his a, name's not even Victor. It's uh DA Sinclair. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, but yeah, he, you know, the, the university professor is giving a talk on, you know, it's, uh, you know, um, we need to focus on quality of life rather than quantity. Because by focusing on quantity, we directly reduce the quality. Um, and then you know he, you know this evil genius guy, um, vocally dis- vocally expresses his disagreement, saying, "Nope, um, you know if you if you want to travel faster, you get into a car. If you want to fly, you get into a plane. Um, as humans, we should be um, engineering uh, the solutions to the inherent weaknesses of our human bodies." Um, and he does get into a bit of an argument with the the almighty Rick, um, the top bloke Rick, yeah, Rick. who's uh, you know amazing. 
Um, and there's a little bit of a shot at um, some of the current internet or pop culture, not pop culture, internet or social media um, lingo when he refers to Rick as an alpha male. And then by, you know, um, by direct relation or by direct um, uh, consequence, he then say that he kind of, this evil genius must think of himself as a beta male um, or everyone around him as beta males, etc. And it's just, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a foreshadowing of, right, okay, evil genius has it in for Rick now. That's not good. Yeah. Yeah. he He has it in for Rick. He's like, I fucking am the whole time. <laughs> it's like he's super mm. into Rick. Uh, uh, it's it's a like he's arguing with Amber as well, which is always a mistake. I think it's it's a really interesting argument in here because there is actually a book coming out before too long from an ICU doctor saying that intensive care units make people worse. That they are it reduces your quality of life if you go into an intensive care unit. And we're seeing this with, with COVID, not to make this not about the the episode. But yeah, this is exactly what we see, that quality of life is way more important than being able to live longer. So it's a good debate to have. And the fact that we put Sinclair on the, the wrong side of it very early on is how we realize, yeah, this guy's bad. But going through the campus itself, like Amber and Mark mm-hmm. wander around, because I'm pretty certain Rick and... Um, Rick and Will go to look at the, I think they look at something else on the campus. I assume that they went to fuck, but that's just me. And they, Mark and Amber have a really good time. Mark and Amber have a really good time where he starts to realize, maybe I do want to go to college. Maybe I do want to go to college here with Amber. And she's like, you're you're just saying that because, you know, you're having a good time. Don't say things you don't mean. He's like, no, no, I really want to do this. This is something I really want to do. And the wonderful moment is ruined by a cyborg crawling out of the ground and attacking everyone. Because that's how things operate in this universe. If you're having a deep and meaningful conversation, a robot will attack you. And this is, oh, it's almost (laughs) a heartbreaking scene because Amber's helping people get out of the way and William is as well. And it kind of makes sense because these people come from a city where this stuff seems to happen all the time. So yeah, they're going to help people move out of the way. They know how to deal with a a monster attack. And Mark is supposed to be um, doing it as well. He's like getting people clear of the, the explosion. And then when the cyborg grabs Rick and then it grabs Will, Mark just fucking vanishes. But Invincible shows up but that's not the point because cause Mark's gone. Like, no one knows where Mark's gone. And they fight, and it's cool, and I love it. It's some good punches. Mark actually gets his ass handed to him. But the important thing is that as he stops this cyborg punching William's brains in, William kind of looks up and goes, oh, shit, that's Mark. He, like, clues in perfectly that this superhero <laughs> is Mark, his friend. It's like, yeah, of course he's going to, of course, they're best friends. He's not going to not realize it's his friend just because like half his face is covered. What's the line from Green Lantern? I I grew up with you. I'm not going to not recognize you because I can't see your cheekbones. Uh, But during the fight, Mark, as I said, gets his ass kicked. He like throws the cyborg up into the air and it's this whole thing. Eventually he rips the cyborg's face mask off. Um... And the thing looks into the... It's very much like classic D&D thing that it's, it's the Medusa seeing its own reflection. The cyborg sees itself 
and like freaks out and impales itself on a on a sculpture because it's like because we realize that it was the the frat boy that we saw earlier in the episode realizing oh my god what have i become i can't i can't live anymore uh but mark's just like all right cool well that was that worked i guess i didn't have to deal with that too much zooms off and reappears as himself um I like the scene. I think it most importantly shows that Mark is still learning and even something that we haven't really seen as a a threat before can beat the shit out of him. That he was on the ropes, that he was, he's not Omni-Man levels yet. That uh, he has to, he has to think smart. He got lucky on this occasion. Oh, totally. Um, 100%. The, the, The point of this fight aside from William now knowing uh, Mark's secret identity, um, the point of this fight really, I I think, was... Actually, there's also a third point, um, but I'll get to that in a sec. Um, One of the key points was that these robots can absolutely paste Invincible. Um, They're put in and demonstrated to be a real threat, even just one-on-one with him. Um, where he gets into a fight with one of them, he may very well lose. Um, you know, gets the shit kicked out of him. Um, second point, you know, uh, William figuring out the identity. Third point, obviously, Mark has to disappear from Amber and put on his costume where she can't see it and then come into the fight, deal with the fight, disappear again, come back out of costume. And he does that, and he goes like, "Hey, everybody, um, I'm back. I'm, I'm bringing the police. They're on their way." And Amber turns around. She's just like, "No, no, no. Fuck you. You know, you disappeared while the rest of us were here. You know, fighting these things off. You know, you're a fucking coward. Um, can't believe that you would do that. You know, you're pathetic. Get away from me. You're a scumbag. Just go away. Go home. Have a shower. Wash the shame away. I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating." Mm. But um, she loses her temper. <laughs> um, she loses her temper and she basically ditches, dumps him right then and there. Yeah, and it's good because earlier in the episode we saw them get back together. That after his supposed bus, like getting hit by a bus and all these injuries and stuff, she comes over and is like, "Oh, I'm so glad you're okay. Look, I'll give you another chance." And he's like, "I'm I'm done with all the lying and being late and not being flaky, basically." And then he does this: that there's trouble and he's just not there, and you can completely understand her reaction that he has said all these things and he just fucking bailed on them to her impression it's like yeah you just fucking ran off what the fuck yes she's going to be mad there's no way he can talk himself out of this beyond there's there's no way without giving up his secret identity there's no way of him going this is why i wasn't there and it's kind i the next scene i think is him and yeah, the next scene is him and or Will trying to be... Will's like, oh my God, you're invincible. you got to tell me all about it. Oh my God, all these things. And he's just like, I don't want to talk about it. My girlfriend just dumped me. This isn't, this isn't about superheroes right now. It's about family. And it's, uh, it's, it's paralleling with that Debbie and Nolan scene later on in the episode where it's how, they, how both Nolan and Mark react is really telling that they both don't know what to say to their partners. But in this case, we've got Will just being like, this is huge. This is life-changing that my friend is invincible. I need to know all these things about what's going on. This is like amazing. And the one person he wants to tell, he can't. 
or the one person that Mark wants to tell, he can't. It's really, yeah, it's well done. It's that, like we were saying before, the superhero opera stuff, it's annoying, but here it kind of works a bit better because we see the natural reaction to all that bullshit going on in real life. Yes, Amber would be fucking furious when the person that she is hearing, that she's in love with, that she's planning on going to university with at this stage, bails and leaves her in the lurch and leaves people that... She's there to help people. She's She works in soup kitchens. She gets people out of the way of danger. And the person that she loves runs away. That's how you react when that happens. That's when you go, fuck you. Fuck you and the horse you rode in on. We are done. I cannot put up with this if you're going to be this person. You don't understand. This cannot work and she's like that for the rest of the episode that if she just refuses to speak to him and it's like fuck yeah amber you go girl i love it Mm -hmm. got to draw the line somewhere and uh you know when it comes to when it comes to this you know mark is you know now feeling very very sorry for himself and woe is me throughout the entire rest of the episode he has a sad you know who really pays the price for this lover's tiff is it Rick? It's Rick. Because Rick being the top bloke that he is, he's like, hey, you know, we got, you know, Mark and Amber, you know, they're feeling out of sorts and they're feeling sad. You know what we should do? We should just, you know, chill out, relax and like try to have a pleasant evening at home. I'll go get beer and pizza for everybody because I'm Rick and I'm a top bloke. And, um, you know, Buying everybody beer should- Buying uh, top bloke. I know, right? So he goes off to do that while, you know, um, the other three, you know, Amber stays locked up in her room by herself and, you know, Mark and William chat about, you know, the implications of him being invincible, etc. I will point out that she doesn't stay locked up in her room. She stays locked up in Rick's room. So uh, Will also misses out, it feels like, because Rick and Will were going to do a lot of things in that room and now they can't because it's Amber's hideaway. Oh, God damn it, Amber, Cockblock and William. Um, yeah, but, uh, in any case, while Rick is out gathering, um, you know, the beer and the pizza gets kidnapped by evil genius man and the cyborgs, uh, because Sinclair. evil genius man wants Rick. Yeah. Evil genius man who I refuse to call by real name for some reason. Now I'm a bit indignant <laughs> about it. Um, he, he could, him and the cyborgs kidnap Rick, the alpha male as uh, evil genius man called him earlier on. And uh, take him down into the sewers where every self-respecting evil genius has their lair. And uh, he, to cut to the chase, makes a cyborg out of Rick. Um, Conveniently, yeah, conveniently as a plot device, um, Rick was FaceTiming uh, with William at the time of when he got kidnapped and the phone cut out. So William goes to Mark and he says, Mark, hey, look, listen, um, you know, Rick's something's happened to Rick. I need your help. We need to go find him. And Mark is like, yeah, now, you know what? I'm going to go to this party that Amber's going to, that she got invited to, because I want to try and get back with Amber. So I'm going to prioritize that over helping you, uh, with, with Rick. Um, you know, so, uh, William, uh, ventures out to where he last, where, where he knew Rick last was and, you know, finds, you know, follows the trail of, discarded shoes and things from the backpack and all of that to find that he went down into a sewer. Uh, So William follows that down and then, you know, uh, William gets himself captured by the evil genius man. Um, In the meantime, at the party, 
um amber is having a reasonably good time you know get trying to get her mind off things and she starts chatting to a very attractive um fellow student at the um at the party and uh you know she's out in the balcony talking to this guy and uh you know we we know from being a part of that conversation as the viewer that there's no romantic attachment between the two because you know she's um you know not looking for anything and plus he you know explains to her that he's got a girlfriend you know in the discussion it comes up in the discussion that you know he's looking forward to his girlfriend coming back so there's no there's no romantic um event happening there but mark rocks up at the party and and another one of these like stupid rom-com romantic tropes he's across the room he doesn't know what they've been talking about all he sees is them like embrace or share a bit of a moment hand on the shoulder on the balcony he's like damn it she's already moved on i'm out i guess i'll go help william anyway i i'm gonna take not umbrage with that interpretation he comes out and he sees them talking on the balcony and he's like oh she's moving on already then he gets a call from will and he sees that the cyborgs have gotten will like the phone cuts out and he's like oh shit there's a cyborg he chooses oh to go. right he makes that choice he could go and i must talk have to looked Amber, away from no. the screen at that moment <laughs> it's like it it looks like there could be that choice of well will i help will or will i go after the girl he's already chosen to go after the girl but will's gone no i need help right now and mark steps up without a doubt it's like there's still that moment like it's just him seeing her across the room and it's like yeah it's that romantic or not romantic romantic drama issue of not understanding it looks like she's moving on already oh my god i'm so angry but then will calls and it's straight into action like mark has no hesitation but after that it's like as soon as there actually is danger he he knows what he needs to do and i think that that's good on mark honestly that he's always kind of been like that when he needs to step up he does it's like he's not he blew off will earlier and i think he obviously regrets that now i must have looked away from the tv at the uh the moment he got that call uh from william because i only i never had that call in my mind in my memories at all i didn't realize that that happened and um you know what this is a good uh you know good reference of players always pay attention when your dm speaks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because there will be a little bit of an element yeah 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 you don't want to yeah. miss something important and then form what is uh, a very potentially inaccurate conclusion based on incomplete information <laughs> pay attention when your dm speaks don't lose track of don't let your attention wander like mine clearly did when watching this episode <laughs> <laughs> I, to be fair i wandered a few times watching this part as well i was much more interested in the eve storyline than this storyline simply because it just kind of happens um and the really we've already seen the the high point which is amber telling mark off it's like the rest of it is just punching although that's not true because will has also been captured by sinclair evil genius guy as mike calls him now and he's basically going to be cyborged as well he's going to be lobotomized he's already he's like he sees rick there helping out and he's like rick save me i mean and sinclair's just like i know i removed his emotions you can't you can't appeal to his memory he has no recollection of you whatsoever he's one of them now and as mark's flying through the sewers and trying to figure this out three cyborgs attack him if he could barely handle one three are going to fuck him up really properly uh which is not good for mark but it's um 
it's useful because he actually gets smashed through a wall into the lair that Sinclair's set up. Uh, it's like, that's really fortunate. It's like, you got exactly where you need to go. These are the worst cyborgs ever that they're going to bring you, bring the hero directly to the villain's lair. But it's it's good. We do get to see him. Like, and Rick is one of the ones beating the crap out of Mark. I think he's holding him steady while the other two beat into him. And it's this is when Will starts to like say, this is the Will's scene. Where he's like, Rick, don't you remember all of those things we did? Don't you remember how we felt? We had sex. We, I really felt something for you. I really loved you. You're the reason I'm here. And there's nothing. There's no response. But when, when Sinclair actually starts to cut on Will and actually cause him pain, that's when something inside Rick just overpowers whatever program's in there and just goes no you don't get to do that and he like rips out the controlling chip and he goes fucking hardcore and he beats living crap out of the other other cyborgs and he yeah there's something more than emotion there it's like emotions don't create love it is something inside there's humanity to it and it's kind of the point of this story that there's finding your humanity is the most important thing you can do I do like that Will's the one that's able, once he gets free, he's the one that's able to beat up Sinclair. He, like, really knocks him down. Uh, and even, it, well, he's the one that, like, gets the, the punch in that Mark is then able to dislocate Sinclair's jaw with one hit. So that's fucking cool. <laughs> that Rick's able to overcome the programming. I mean, that's a standard trope. That's something that often gets used. That's that idea of, yes, the humanity is stronger than all. I just really appreciate it here. That it's not the memories, it's not um, it's not something deep down. Well, it is something deep down. It's just him caring for somebody else. And that's kind of what we see throughout it. That it's Eve caring for somebody else. That Debbie's so hurt because she's caring for somebody else. That Mark needs to learn to care for other people. And Rick, Rick caring for somebody else is what snaps, what overcomes the programming. And Sinclair, who sees... quantity of life better than quality of life doesn't understand that that he did not plan for this because he doesn't see other people as something to care about with rick's help they're able to defeat sinclair and the cyborgs uh, and cecil shows up because mark just like ah yeah cecil um can could you come and clean up this mess that i've got myself into and i like that cecil's just like yeah we're gonna lock that guy up but he's kind of looking at the what Sinclair's achieved and he's like hmm that's pretty impressive actually hard to believe they actually gave you a run for your money mark and you can see the wheels turning in his brain like huh if Mark had a problem with these I wonder what they do with Nolan so that's that's a very much a a seesaw thing to be doing and then we kind of um wrap it up with Rick getting taken away as well and here I feel is the important part of the storyline that Will is devastated by this and Mark comforts him and is like talking to him and taking care of him but when he goes to get something out of the bedroom for it and sees Amber he's like I'm not going to try again I'm not going to try to talk to her I'm going to go help Will it's like Will's the one that needs me right now not my own personal relationship bullshit and i think that's really the Hold on. the lesson the lesson that mark learns from this is that sometimes you 
put aside your personal desires to help your friends. Totally. But uh, William's um, William's contributions to this episode, and uh, especially the way that he acts in those final confrontations, definitely led to William being my favourite character for the episode. Um, because he finally got given some real personality here and um, got given some real airtime. Um, so now, especially now, the fact that he knows Mark's uh, secret identity, I think that this episode, uh, you know, kind of leads or gives an indication of he's going to be a more important character moving forwards uh, than he was in previous episodes. Uh, which is a good thing uh, because he's well written and he's well voiced and he uh, he always does have some good uh, contributions to the episodes that he's in, you know? I agree. I think this was a great one for William. That was a very good... Uh, William's a great one to have as an NPC, an offsider for the party to keep things light, but also be, I guess, the resident pet of the party. The one that if you hurt that, this person, the party's going to go bonkers on your shit. They're going to fuck you up because you hurt their friend. That's Will's role to me in a in a, in a RPG game. Spot on. So that's our episode for this week. Uh, tune in next week when we talk about episode seven of Invincible. We need to talk. We do need to talk. That's how we communicate. This oh, second, the penultimate episode of the series. This is going to be an interesting one, I think. I think all the threads are going to start to come together. Uh, definitely don't miss out. So tune in. You can subscribe to us on... All the Spotify, Spot, Spotify, all the podcast catcher programs from Spotify to Apple Podcasts, but we are hosted by Podbean, where you can find us or find me at dndtv. That's not right, dndntvpod.podbean.com. Uh, uh, same and on Twitter, same on Instagram, dndntvpod. And you can also reach us at Gmail, same way. But Mike, Mike, since Mike is a guest, um, one of the best guests we've had on the show so far. Mike, where can people find you if they want to check out your cool stuff that's on the internet? Best place to find me would be on Twitch, uh, hosting my live streaming channel. And on that channel, you'll be able to find all the links to my other social medias. Uh, to find that Twitch page, it is twitch.tv forward slash doctor underscore chops. That's dr underscore c-h-o-p-s like and subscribe do it now do it do it so (laughs) go and do that but also thanks for listening and be kind to yourselves